Well, good morning, everyone. My name is CJ. I'm one of the pastors at Citizens. Uh, it's really a gift, as always, to be with you, even over Zoom. Uh, as a reminder, the vision of our church here at Citizens is rooted in our three core identities. We are family, we are servants, we are missionaries. And this is who we are. We're children of the Father, served by Christ, made servants by Christ, the sacrificial lamb, sent by the Spirit to proclaim the gospel and the kingdom to the world. And this makes us a set-apart people, kingdom tightrope walkers, people living in the tension of the already and the not yet, a colony of resident aliens, citizens of Christ's eternal kingdom, living in present-day Babylon, seeking its welfare while not buying into pagan ideology. We're living in this tension, and this tension that we live in is an impossible task for us. It is fully reliant on the power and the presence of Jesus Christ himself, who accomplished both sides of the covenant between man and God through his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and intercession. And so we come this morning to give glory and praise to Jesus Christ. He is surprised by nothing, viruses, racial inequality, uh, civil unrest, natural disasters, wars, famines. None of these things are outside the purview of God's sovereign rule over his creation. And so we have hope this morning that God is at work in human history. He's telling one big story, all of which has to do with redemption and renewal and the restoration of all things. And so all of these pieces of the story fit together. This morning, we're at the end of our series, One Kingdom, which is a study on the story of God and how the values of God's one eternal kingdom come to bear in our city, state, and country. And there is good news for us this morning, and it's that Christ is victorious in the end. He defeats Satan. He conquers sin and death. He reigns supreme over all of creation, ushering in the new heavens and the new earth. But the question is, how does Jesus go about conquering? What type of conqueror is Christ? And the fact is that Jesus wins by losing. I don't know about you, but I love to win and I hate to lose. If my kids beat me at anything, it is truly a sweet tasting victory because they know their dad will never let them win. Uh, I mentioned a few months back that, that I watched um, recently the documentary, The Last Dance about Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. And man, talk about a person obsessed with winning. Uh, man, I love Michael Jordan. He's like a childhood hero of mine. Um, but as I watch this series and as you just see him interviewed, you increasingly see this like little bit dark <laughs> desire that he has, this obsession he has um, with winning that actually was sort of serving a little bit as a mirror to me. Um, one thing stands out to me is there are multiple occasions where Michael would sort of like make up this fake story about how this opponent on the other team had like trash talked him or said something bad to him. And he would just like let that simmer in his mind so that he would then like use that against that player next time he played him. And man, you realize that like 
Michael Jordan to this day still has major beef with guys like Isaiah Thomas. And you kind of think like, man, that's like from the 90s. Like you guys don't want to work that out. And so you kind of get this sense of like, man, there's, there's such a cost sometimes that comes what, with winning. Um, and I felt, I felt that from Michael. I felt like, man, you've lost a lot um, at, the, at the altar of needing to win. Um, and so while I don't envy MJ, I definitely relate to him on smaller scales. I was thinking about how uh, a couple months ago, I was trash talking Maggie uh, about Whole30 because she didn't finish. And I was using her as sort of like a muse, like, hey, actually you're gonna be my primary motivation as to the way that I'm gonna perfectly accomplish it. Um, and the joke is on me because much to many of your delight, I'm sure I, I failed. I did not make it all the way. Um, and so I'm a happy member of the half 15 club. So Maggie, it's you and me. We're just, we're together now. There's a type of winning that's actually losing. And there's a type of losing that's actually winning. That is the scandal of the gospel. It's the trick that Jesus plays on Satan. Paul references this in Colossians chapter 2, 15, when he says that when Jesus secured salvation for his people through his own death, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What do we got? Slide's not working? There we go. Uh, no. Okay, it's just delayed. No it's worries. Christ's winning political strategy is to die at the hands of evil power structures and to invite his constituents to join him. Okay, that's what we're after this morning. We, like Christ, win, truly win, by losing. Now, man, only faithful followers of Jesus will walk into the 2020 election cycle with this type of mentality, right? Um, and if you're not a Christian, you will find that thinking absolutely preposterous. But the message of the gospel, the message of the scriptures is like, man, if you're increasingly, if you increasingly find yourself winning in San Francisco, in California, in the United States, through politics, through power structures, you might actually be losing in the kingdom. Let me pray for us before we jump in. God, there's so much about you and your ways, so much about your scriptures that we still have yet to comprehend and understand and, and much that we do know and don't follow. God, we confess that we are self-serving people, that we are bent on winning and so, Jesus, we ask that you would forgive us, that you would give us new eyes to see, fresh ears to hear, open hearts, humble hearts to, to understand the wisdom of God. We need your help, Father, this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So if you've been with us, we've been in the story of God. Um, rolling through kind of these themes. We started in creation where we learned that politics is inherently good and actually created by God. But then uh, in the fall, we see that human beings are bent toward evil and therefore there's some nece necessity for law and order. Um, but then we don't see the fruition of God's law for his people until the book of Exodus. 
um, where we see that God's people are set apart, called by him to be devoted servants who are sort of mediating a kingdom of politics um, by setting tables for people that they've never sat at before. In the exile, we, we learn that God has called his people, that includes us, to be voices of wisdom in the midst of the confusion and chaos of Babylon. And then in Jesus, we see the perfect fulfillment of God's kingdom politic. We see a perfect righteousness, a perfect justice. Remember that Jesus is the one who perfectly kind of danced on the tightrope. Uh, and if you remember nothing from the, the entire series, remember this image that, that Dave put up of Jesus tightroping uh, with all the lasers around him. I'm sure you, you probably will remember nothing except this image, but it's worth it. Um, and then we see in the church that you and I are living in the already but not yet reality of God's kingdom. And so, man, this morning we get to end with the new creation. So let's do this. Let's, we're talking about the apocalypse today. Uh, so my job is to predict the end of the world, preach doom and gloom, call us all to repentance, and then pass the offering plate. Okay, uh, And then if there's time, try to tie it all into QAnon. Um, and, and just sort of create this new crazy picture of the end of the world. I'm obviously kidding. Uh, I don't know what your experience is with the book of Revelation, but Dave and I were talking about this last week, but for both of us, usually growing up in the church, Revelation sort of involved constant predictions of the end of the world, um, an attempt to decoding all the symbols and images to try and understand exactly when and where and how Jesus would return. It involved a lot of political discussion around America's relationship with the nation of Israel, a lot about the rapture. There's this uh, song that DC Talk covered when I was in high school that's like, two men walking up a hill, one disappeared and one's left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. And I like loved that song when I was in high school. I didn't realize later that it was like totally messed up. Um, so for this reason, I've kind of always had a little bit of an allergy to the book of Revelation. But the thing is, it's too important a book to let anyone ruin it for us. It's a beautiful book worth studying. In fact, I really want to encourage you. Um, I was going to post a, a link in the chat. Maybe somebody can find this. But the Bible Project, which is a wonderful resource for learning the Bible, has a couple videos on the book of Revelation that I watched a ton this week that were just really helpful to me. I found them both informative and ex extremely edifying. And so if you have time this week, I encourage you to, to take a look at those videos. So the book of Revelation opens with the word apocalypsis, which is where we get our word apocalypse. And I think most of us, when we hear that word, think that it means end times or the end. Uh, but let's look at the literal translation here in verse 1. Revelation chapter 1 verse 1 says the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the word apocalypse means to reveal or to uncover. So God intends to reveal to John, the writer of Revelation, uh, to the first century New Testament church and to us something about life in the final chapter of his redemptive story, which is where you and I find ourselves today. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, 
even to all that he saw. And so, yes, this does suggest that God is revealing details of what might happen in the end times. But really, I think what's more important is is what he says we are to do with this revelation. Let's look at what he said in in verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So right here in verse 3, there are three imperatives for those who are reading Revelation. To know, to listen to, and to guard. That first word, anagonosko, which is translated in the ESV to read aloud, is actually from the word gnosko, which just means to know. And so the idea here is to increasingly understand through repetition of reading. And so we are to repeatedly read over and over the book of Revelation. Why? Well, the second verb, it, the second verb here in imperative is acuantes, which is translated hearing, but it's more about listening. Okay, those of us with children know the difference between hearing and listening. My kids always hear me, but they don't always listen to me. Okay, so we are to listen with the intent of hearing from the Lord what he wants to reveal to us. And then finally, the final uh, verb that's translated keep in the ESV has this idea of guarding or preserving. Okay, so we are to understand through repetition, to truly listen with open and humble hearts, and to guard or preserve these words. Okay, so nowhere here does John tell us that we should read the book of Revelation and try to decode it for the timeline and details of Christ's return. It has way more to do with our own discipleship. It has way more to do with helping us to discern what is taking place in the present moment of our lives, particularly related to power structures and our relationship to them, and what God might be kind of trying to do and what he might be trying to teach his church in the midst of what's happening politically. It speaks to our response to what is the inevitable challenges the church will face in every generation. Now, obviously, there's so much in Revelation, so I don't have time to cover a lot of it today. We're just going to get a tiny snapshot. So I'm going to read a review, sort of an overview from the, the, the ESV study Bible that I really like. Let's read this summary from the ESV. It says, Revelation unveils the unseen spiritual war in which the church is engaged. That's very present tense. The cosmic conflict between God and his Christ on the one hand and Satan and his evil allies on the other. In this conflict, Jesus the Lamb has already won the decisive victory through his sacrificial death, but his church continues to be assaulted by the dragon in its death throes through persecution, false teaching, and the allure of material affluence and cultural approval. Okay, so brothers and sisters, we are civilians living in the center of a spiritual war between God and Satan. God is calling us to faithfulness 
in the midst of his judgments on the world and what will decidedly include our own persecution for being his followers. It's tempting, and it was tempting for me this week, when you get to the book of Revelation, sort of skip to the end, to the beautiful description of the new heavens and the new earth in, in chapters 21 and 22. But we need to understand that those parts of Revelation serve as a description of the reward that faithful followers of Jesus will receive as a result of their faithfulness in the midst of hardship. So let's look at that list of assaults that's mentioned in that summary. Persecution, false teaching, the allure of material influence. And I just encourage you to look at that list for a minute and ask like, which of those are present in your life right now? What scheme has Satan devised in this cosmic battle to turn your attention away from Christ? And just as you look at that list, I want to encourage you, will you turn to Jesus in repentance this morning? Will you seek to understand through repetition, to truly listen with an open and humble heart, to guard these words, Babylon is busy vying for our allegiance. So what practices will we commit to in order to preserve our formation as citizens of Christ's kingdom? What practices are you implementing into your life? What rhythms do you have? What rule of life do you have even now to preserve your mind and your heart for the sake of Christ's values and his kingdom? The Apostle John, the writer of Revelation, was arguably Jesus' closest friend during his time on earth. No one was more committed to understanding, hearing, and guarding God's revelation than he was. But there's a moment in the story of Revelation, in in his visions, where John actually thinks he may not get the chance to experience what God has promised him. The first heavenly vision that John has in Revelation is a door to heaven standing open. And when he walks in, he sees God sitting on the throne in the very center. And surrounding God is like a series of concentric circles. There's this, what appears to be like a rainbow. And then the next layer out is a group of living creatures who are standing guard over God's throne. And then a little further out, you you have 24 elders. And then beyond that, you have all other creatures in all the universe. So God, he has this picture of God sort of sitting on this throne over all creation, both in the heavenly and earthly realms. Okay, so this is the scene that John walks into. It's a picture of God's authority, of his sovereignty, of his glory. And John notices that God sitting on his throne is holding something in his hand. We're going to pick it up in Revelation chapter 5, starting in verse 1. He says, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Okay, these seven seals on the scroll are the first of three subsequent visions that John is going to have, all of which are in a series of seven. There are seven seals, followed by seven trumpets, and then seven bowls. All of these visions 
reveal the meaning and purpose behind God's plan for humanity in the midst of this cosmic battle. And the question the angel poses is, is there anyone in all the universe who is able to open the scroll? Is it possible that anyone might hear and understand the mind and the heart of God for his people? And verse three says this, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And look at John's response. He says, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So as quickly as the question is posed, is there anyone worthy? It is immediately answered, no, not even one. And man, I'm struck by John's response. He weeps over this reality. And man, anytime somebody weeps in the scriptures, I just immediately sense that the Lord is after something in my own heart. Maybe you're somebody that weeps, uh, that's given to weeping, that's able to weep. But man, I am not somebody who weeps. I struggle. I struggle to cry. I struggle to weep. There's this mechanism in me that immediately fights tears whenever they come. Um, there's a pretty short list on this planet of people who've ever seen me weep. And man, I just, I want to be more like John. He is able to weep and he knows just when to weep. And so why is John so struck by this response and why is he weeping? It's because God has given John a very clear picture of the hardness of heart present in all creatures, all in all of heaven and all of earth. John was very familiar with the many passages in scripture that promise that those who are truly seeking God will indeed find him. I don't have it on the screen, but Proverbs 8, 17 says, I love those who love me and those who seek me find me. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And then in Matthew 7, 7, John would have heard Jesus say these words, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. John would have remembered those words and thought, I want to know. I, I'm interested in hearing these truths. William Barclay uh, is one of my favorite commentators uh, in the scriptures, reflects on this passage and he says this about this section of Revelation. He says, God cannot deliver a message to men and women unless they are able to receive it. This is the very essence of the problem of communication. It is the problem for teachers. They cannot teach truth which their students are unable to receive. It is the problem for preachers. They cannot deliver a message to a congregation totally incapable of comprehending it. It is the eternal problem of love. Love cannot tell its truths or give its gifts to those incapable of hearing and receiving. The need of the world is for men and women who are sensitive to God. He has a message for the world in every generation, but that message cannot be delivered until people are found who are capable of receiving it. And day by day, we either make ourselves receptive to the message of God or fail to hear it. Man, what is God 
working so hard, even now, to tell us that we just will not hear. Brothers and sisters, we are not living in a moment of spiritual renewal in our culture. The momentum of this culture is not towards seeking God. Even among those of us who profess to follow Christ, we need to weep over that like John. We should lose sleep over it. We should plead with God that he might reveal himself to us and to those that we know and love, to our city, to our country. We need to beg and plead that, that God would open the hearts of the religious and political leaders, to all of the hate groups, to the conspiracy theorists, to our enemies, to those who consider us enemies. Our prayer lives should be marked with a sense of utter sadness over the current state of our world. To see the world as God does is to rightly see a world desperate for God's divine intervention, intervention, desperate for both his judgment and his salvation. John is in complete despair until he hears a hopeful word in verse five. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This is the beauty of the gospel. Jesus is the one. He is the one who can open the seals. He is the one who can reveal the will of God to us. He alone is worthy. Jesus, the Messiah, the one who came to set the captives free, to give sight to the blind, the firstborn of all creation, the new Adam, the perfect priest and mediator between God and man, king of kings, the prophet that is better than Moses, Jesus who died, who lived perfectly, died willfully at the hands of evil men, who secured salvation for you and I, though we were dead in our transgressions by raising from the dead as the triumphal lion of Judah. Even John, friend of Jesus, witness of the resurrection, apostle of the early church, writer of the book of Revelation, needed to be reminded of this. That gives me so much hope this morning. So Jesus conquers. He is the one who can open the seals, but not in the way that we expect. There's a motif that runs throughout the book of Revelation that I never saw that actually uh, was revealed to me while watching the Bible Project's video of Revelation. It's this motif between what John hears in his vision and what he sees. Um, And so this is the first of those. John hears from the angel, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered. But then John sees a different picture than what he might've expected in verse six. It says, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain 
with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So John hears a lion, but he sees a lamb. One commentator named Dennis Johnson reflects on this. He says, it is almost as if John were saying to us at one point after another, wherever the Old Testament says lion, read lamb. Wherever the Old Testament speaks of the victory of the Messiah or the overthrow of the enemies of God, we are to remember that the gospel recognizes no other way of achieving these ends than the way of the cross. Jesus wins by losing. It is a scandal, preposterous to those who do not believe. The question for us this morning is, will we join him? Will we be like Christ? Will we take up arms in his battalion of suffering and death? Death to ourselves. Death to our pride. Death to our reputation management. Death to our financial security. Death to our worldly prosperity. Death to our political ideology. It is the only way to truly live and to conquer with Christ as co-heirs. I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 16, verses 24, when Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit, what will profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. This is the future. This is what's coming. And then he will repay each person according to to what he has done. So man, this is a convicting statement. It's the heart of the gospel. It's the true reality of following Christ. And it's a political statement about the kind of kingdom that Christ came to establish. Will we follow Jesus? So Jesus, the slain lamb in this vision, breaks the seals. He opens the scroll. And what follows is what I mentioned earlier, a sequence of a set of three different visions, all in sevens, all of which follow a similar pattern of God bringing judgment upon the world for their rebellious sin. And in each of these sequences of seven, the people living in the earth do not begin to respond to God and his judgment in humility until one specific sort of consistent thing takes place. So very quickly, the first four seals in this first vision are of four horsemen that represent war, conquest, famine, and death. It's a tragic vision that can be applied to several periods in history, which is why it is so difficult to nail down details and a literal timeline for them and why so many 
also have sort of claimed their living in it. There's a lot of people that's like, oh, the end is near because of war, conquest, famine, and death, right? These four horsemen are riding like wraiths through our world all the time in, in every generation. Um, so we might, we might think that these kinds of events would cause repentance. And think of all our country is enduring today. Kevin was reflecting on this in the call to worship. We're in the midst of a global pandemic, racial injustice, civil, civil unrest, like our, our country like coming apart at the seams, wars, famines, fires, bombings. I thought this week as I studied this text, man, if, if I did not yet follow Jesus, might this cultural moment be the time that I would turn to him? May, might this be the time I would open my Bible and begin to read uh, to discover what, are, what is the truth about the gospel? Would this maybe be the time I would call up that Christian that I know who I was always intrigued by and curious about to ask them questions? May, would this maybe be the time that I would reach out seeking for answers about what the truth is of the gospel? But that is not the case in John's visions. Here is the turning point. It's when the fifth seal is opened. The fifth seal reveals the persecution of God's people, specifically Christian martyrs, people who follow Jesus and are killed for it. In this fifth seal, the martyrs are told to rest because soon many others will join them. It's, a, it's not very hopeful. It says, find rest because there will be more people dying soon. Notice here the stark contrast to what many Christians in our country have in mind when they think of God's judgment coming upon his enemies. Many Christian evangelicals think that God's judgment will result in their prosperity and protection. And so they pray for God's judgment to come upon those who oppose him in the hopes that they might be restored to positions of power. But that is the opposite message in the book of Revelation and all of these visions. God says, when I come in judgment, the turning of the tide will actually happen when my followers begin to identify way more with Jesus and his sufferings as the slain lamb than they ever have experienced before. So man, I was talking about this in my sermon on exile, but I truly sense and believe that the persecutions of Christians is in our future in this country. That, that Christians will lose social standing more and more and more and more in this country. And man, to a certain extent, I do not lament that. I don't think that that's a bad thing because I believe that how Christians, true followers of the way of Jesus, how we respond to persecution will turn the hearts of some back to God. The sixth seal reveals something called the day of the Lord. This is a really common picture throughout the Old Testament, Testament prophecies in places like Isaiah chapter two and Joel chapter two. These pictures of God's wrath sort of finally coming and judgment against the world. Revelation six describes it this way in verses 15 through 17. It says, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. This is how bad it gets. 
calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And the question, their question is, who can stand in the midst of such suffering on account of God's wrath in the day of the Lord? The seventh seal simply sort of inaugurates the next set of sevens, uh, which is the picture of a trumpet following a long silence. So I want to focus a little bit, talk a little bit about the sixth, more about the sixth seal. And that's what John does in chapter seven, which is an attempt to sort of answer the, qu- the question that people have there, who can stand in the midst of God's uh, wrath? And this vision repeats that same hearing and seeing motif that John experienced earlier. Let's look at Revelation chapter seven, verse four. It says, and I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, many Christians believe, and I, was, I grew up being taught, that this number, this 144,000 number, is a literal number of Jewish people who do not yet follow Jesus, but who decide to follow him during a future period of judgment, usually considered a, a period of seven days or seven years, which is called the tribulation. But another explanation for this image, one that I find compelling, is one of a military census, um, like the one in Numbers chapter 1. This this sort of text in Revelation sort of mirrors that passage in Numbers chapter 1, which is a lot of what the book of Revelation is about. It assumes a, a working knowledge of the Old Testament and the ability to go back into the Old Testament and find the source material for what John's vision means. And so here, this 144,000 number is actually more about God revealing a kind of army or a group of followers who join him in his political plan to conquer evil through his own means of suffering. So again, John hears this number mentioned, but then look at what he sees in Revelation 7, uh, 9 through 10. He says, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Okay, so we go from a a small number of 144,000. That's what he hears. But then look what he sees, Uh, a, a multitude that no one could number. What is this group of people like? From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Okay, so again, John hears what sounds like military conquest, but then he sees that same image of the lamb, the slain lamb. And this time, a group of people, a multitude of people from every nation on earth, different tribes, speaking different languages, all following this slain lamb. So God is hammering home in this revelation This idea that it is through Christ, the slain lamb, that we, his followers, become victorious. And that victory that we participate in 
brings a global unity that is more beautiful than anything that we have ever seen. Certainly greater than anything we have been able to achieve in our best efforts as a humanity. So brothers and sisters, like we have to be reminded over and over again that our goal as Christians is not to win. That's not our goal this fall in an election cycle. Like our goal as Christians is not to sit in places of political power and privilege. Our only goal is Jesus identifying with the slain lamb that like him, we might win in the end by losing. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't participate in voting. We absolutely should. It doesn't mean we shouldn't vote with conviction based on what we think is the most honorable thing to do for the sake of the Lord. We absolutely should. It doesn't mean we shouldn't pray that our country and its leadership will increasingly seek wisdom from the scriptures on how they should govern. We should absolutely hope and pray for that and use our influence to promote the flourishing of our country. But we are not in the winning game. Jesus alone is the one who is victorious. And Revelation seems to suggest, and history actually tells us, that as God judges the world through different times in history, it is the persecution of his church that actually spreads the gospel and becomes the means, the means by which many are saved because our enemies witness our response to persecution and it breaks their hearts. It, it absolutely shatters their categories. Why, as I persecute God's people and, and conduct myself as an enemy of God's people, why are they responding with love and grace and kindness? Why are they speaking words of, of love and, and grace and mercy to me? And it breaks their hearts and causes them to say, there must be something in this. There must be something to what these people believe because as they suffer, they continue to love me well and continue to glorify this God they believe named Jesus. I wish I had more time. I, I want to close this morning just by reading some of Revelation chapter 21 and 22. These texts are the reward for those followers of the slain lamb who remain faithful in the midst of persecution. It's a vision of human flourishing that no platform we hear in the coming months can come anywhere close to. And so I just pray that as we read through these words this morning, that we would find some hope and comfort, that we would be reminded how sweet the victory is in Christ when we follow his way, the way of the slain lamb, and that we might be a people this morning and as we close this series and come into this fall, it was like, and I'm a person who is willing to suffer with Christ and be rewarded in ways that are beyond what we could possibly imagine. Let me read a couple verses here, starting in Revelation 21. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Oh, how I long for that moment. And these as well, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And then in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1, or sorry, Revelation chapter 22, starting in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. Think about that, those words. Think about how hard it is for people in our world to believe they can trust anything that's said to them. And think of how hard it is for people to believe that there is anything, such a thing as objective truth. And right here it says, these words are both trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for giving me the gift of um, just getting to preach this sermon this week and the, the time that it afforded me to study more of the book of Revelation. Um, thank you for, for instructing me and, and teaching me and moving in my heart, Father, um, demonstrating to me, again, just how much I like to identify with winning and power, um, even in sort of my, like some of my self-deprecation and humility can often be false humility and, and still secretly sort of wanting to elevate myself. And so, um, gosh, thank you for this word. And I just pray for our church family that we would be a people that are willing to identify with weakness, that we're willing to identify with the slain lamb. I pray that we would um, be voices of reason and grace in this upcoming season of, of voting, that we would be able to mediate kingdom politics and set tables for people to gather, that we would uh, be in and not of the world. God, that you would give us wisdom and grace and the ability to stay engaged in what's happening in our city, state, and country while ultimately realizing that our highest